Oh my god, it's like we're the same person. <laughs> yes, indeed, you are listening to the Artifexian podcast. My name is Edgar. People on the internet call me Artifexian, and I am joined by my homie in chief, Bill McGrath. Hey, everyone. And today, we're going to be talking about world building. But first, Bill, Artifexian podcast, episode one. How are you feeling? Yeah, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling excited. I'm really looking forward to doing this. Uh, me too, me too. I'm nervous as hell, but it should be fun. Uh, so, how about we uh, we tell the listeners what this is all about, why we're doing this? Yeah, okay. Do you want to go ahead and explain? Right, so this is the Artifexian podcast. It is the podcast that is going to uh, go along with the Artifexian YouTube channel. And the reason why I wanted to set this up was to have a platform where I could speak a little bit more in-depth about the topics I cover on the YouTube videos. Because I try and limit myself to about five, six minutes on the videos. Podcasts obviously run on a lot longer. And I decided to have you, Bill, on board because you are a good friend of mine and also a very good world builder. And I feel like this could be a very interesting adventure for us. Ah, cheers, buddy. So, yeah, what do you think about the podcast? What's What are your hopes and aspirations for it? Um, I guess chiefly, I'm just looking forward to having the opportunity to, you know, regularly talk with you about these issues and, you know, get my own thoughts more in order and to get a, a better insight to your perspective on world building. And hopefully, if it gets good feedback from the listeners, then, you know, to get their insights and, and you know, spread spread the word and... Spread the spread the hobby. Exactly, yeah, and I and I think that's one thing I do want to try and encourage uh, with people is that this podcast is like it's obviously me and you speaking about world building, but we do really want to encourage people to write into the show and join in the discussion and get debating with us about world building issues and general fiction, really. And how can that be achieved? You can uh, email the show at edgar at artifexian.com and I'll put that in the show notes. Despite the name of that email, that is actually the official email for the show and both myself and Bill will have access to it and will read any and all comments that come in. Great. So email, anything else? You can head over to the Artifexian subreddit, which will probably be or Artifexian. It has not been set up as of yet. We're just in the sort of recording phases, but uh, hopefully by the time this, this podcast goes live we will have the subreddit up and running. Cool. And also, actually, on the subject of the subreddit, I should probably take this opportunity as well to say that the the videos will also be posted on that subreddit. So if you want to discuss the videos as well, you could go over to the subreddit. It's just, again, it's a nicer platform than the YouTube comments, so I really encourage people to head on over there. Uh, yeah, well, the, the world-building Reddit is already a great community, so hopefully we can build something just as nice in our own Reddit. Absolutely, and hopefully we'll look at trying to like work in tandem with that subreddit because that subreddit is like the best subreddit on Reddit for me. It is, it is incredible. It's just so creative and imaginative. I, I love it. So, how often are we going to be talking, Edgar? How often are we going to be recording these? The release schedule hopefully will be like one podcast every three to four weeks. Hopefully. Um, purely because I would love to release more, but I also do need to do the videos. And like, Bill, you, you're a busy man. I'm a busy man. And I think three to four weeks is possibly the fastest we can churn these things out. Okay. And uh, I guess this is probably the, the right place to point out as well that the, for the first few podcasts, at least, we're not going to be live. We'll be pre-recording some of them uh, ahead of the initial release date. So... Any comments and things from the first couple of podcasts will be addressed. They'll just be addressed maybe, you know, around podcast number four or so. Okay, I think that's, uh, is that all of our all of our housekeeping taken care of? Oh, one last thing, uh, actually. the uh, Because this is a podcast, the podcast needs to have a home to live. And that home is artifexian.com. Again, I'll throw those links in the show notes. Uh, so that's the new Artifexian website. And again, if you want, you can go there. You'll find videos, the podcast, a bit of info about myself and Bill. And do check it out. I'd very much appreciate that. Super. So to define world building. Yeah, go for it. Bill, what how do you define world building? Um Well, this is one of those tricky questions that, you know, it seems as though it would have a pretty obvious answer. And it does have a, a kind of an obvious intuitive answer. 
But when you actually try and define it, things get more complicated. Mm-hmm. You know, like just when someone tries to ask you, how would you define music or how would you define art and those kind of those kind of tricky areas like that. But I guess you could make a stab at it by saying it's creating an internally consistent setting for either to place some kind of fiction or to place some kind of other art or just in and of itself as, as a sort of an artistic and intellectual endeavor in and of itself, creating a, a, a setting that follows its own rules and does so consistently. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's, that is spot on as a definition in my books as well. Uh, the biggest thing about world building for me is like you pointed out the self consistency and the internal consistency. That's really, really, really important. And I think the the place where you're most likely to run into world building for those that don't like know the term straight off the bat uh, would be the fantasy genre and the sci-fi genre. Both genres world build heavily. Absolutely. I mean, like anything where you have a world that is not our own, you know, that is a world that has been created. That's world building. Or, you know, a world that is our own, but you go into space and then there's other things that aren't real to interact with. That's that's a constructed setting. It's world building. Exactly. Any any setting that needs to be constructed is, is world building. Again, it's just that sci-fi and fantasy are kind of the most renowned for doing it. Yeah. I would say it's probably not too far to to suggest that most people's interest in world building comes from being fans of sci-fi and fantasy. Absolutely. I'd I'd hazard a guess that most people's interest in world building probably stems from Lord of the Rings, Tolkien's works. Um you can make that argument anyway. C.S. Lewis might be another, yeah, another of course. option, but he he's a contemporary of of Tolkien's, and they were, they were moved in the same circles. So I'm not sure who came first. There, are, as with all of these things, there is probably someone earlier you could you could pick out and right, make a case yeah. for. But yeah, like I mean, Tolkien is is as good a consensus as we're likely to get. Exactly, and wh- while we're on the subject of Tolkien, that brings up. Uh, one of the reasons why people worldbuild, and we kind of touched on it a second ago, is to write novels. That's the primary aim, usually, of worldbuilding. To supply mm-hmm. it, to supply a setting where in which all the action can happen within your novel. Yeah. But then it can obviously extend a little bit further, as we all know, Bill, to video games. They also can have really high levels of worldbuilding in them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and I suppose a good example would be perhaps Skyrim. Has a good, a very good world. Um, yeah, and the the series as a whole has a, a big narrative written throughout it, and yeah, like Skyrim references events from Oblivion. I I think Oblivion references events from Morrowind. I can't remember. I haven't played Morrowind, but uh, yeah. So it's not just contained within single works. It can span, you know, several books, or in the case of Star Trek, several TV shows, mm. several series. And it can span media as well. Like, you know, there's Star Wars, there's the films, and then there's all the comics and all the expanded universe novels. Yeah. And again, this all lends to that idea of internal consistency. It gives the world more kind of, uh, like, credit, you know? Yeah. So, of course, we have we have video games, and then it's not a huge leap of the imagination to see that world building can apply to other forms of games, and particularly like role playing games like uh, Pathfinder or D anD D. And you, sir, Bill, uh, you quite like your role playing games. So, do you want to talk a little bit about the world building within uh, your favorite setting? So, yeah, I'm a big fan of the Pathfinder role playing game, and in particular the setting that they they set it in. Uh, Galarian. Okay. And the reason I find it so interesting is, well, there's a lot of reasons, and they're a very deliberately progressive company, and they make an effort to include, you know, a diverse array of characters. Yeah, and, and have good representation, and that's something that I really appreciate in art. But also, just as, you know, a setting for holding games, there are certain assumptions that will be made from any role-playing setting of this kind. You know, you have to have magic, Right, yeah. You have to have the kind of the familiar fantasy races people are used to playing with. Because if you don't have those, then it kind of warps the underlying assumption of the game and it becomes difficult to engage people. Okay. And so it's quite a limited mode of working. But within that, they I think they just do an incredible job of providing a lot of different things for people to do. 
you know, you, you need places for people to go and have an adventure because, you know, it's, it's a role-playing game. You need, you need conflict. Mm-hmm. And they seem to cater for almost everything you can think of from the sort of the tropes, the classic tropes of fantasy and fantasy gaming. That's represented somewhere in Galarian. Okay. It's done really well. Like there, there's, there's a country which is full of Indiana Jones old, you know, Egyptian temples to loot. <laughs> Class. You can have political intrigue and you know backstabbing courtiers. There's a country that's kind of inspired by the you know an exaggerated version of the French Revolution. Cool. Um, there's a little bit of technology. You know, if you want to have kind of a sort of science fantasy kind of thing. You know, you could you can get Conan the Barbarian in there. That, you know, <laughs> uh, brave woodsmen carving out a new empire on you know on a, on a, a vast uninhabited continent. They have all of these kind of tropes represented somehow, and it's done in a pretty realistic and you know w- within the confines of a fantasy game, believable way. It doesn't come across, Bill, then as just like a mismatch of everything. Like it, it, it properly gels. Yeah, I I think so. Yeah, I think so. Wow, that's that's quite a hard thing to achieve if you're going to have that level of variety all within one location, regardless of how big that location is. That's pretty mm-hmm. cool. That's very, very cool. I haven't played, but that sounds really interesting. I'll get you there one day, dude. There's also the world building that I do, uh, and that is world building for none of the above reasons, just purely as a tool to exercise my mind and to understand more about our world. Uh, And world building is a great hobby and mental exercise in that regard, because it really does force you to learn an awful lot about an awful lot. For sure, yeah. I mean, there's kind of no end to what you can do, what you can create. You could spend, you know, 40 years nailing down every aspect of the geography and, you know, the the solar system and the political relationships between the countries and you'd never have the time to kind of come up with a comprehensive idea of what each country dressed like. If you do it as a mental exercise, then then it's okay to spend many, many, many years just, you know, kind of learning as you go. But if you are building a game or a, a tabletop game or a novel, it is important to try and curtail the world building process. Uh, to oh, of like, course. Yeah, to don't let, like, not to let it overrun, like, the rest of the creative process. That's true. And you do see this in games anyway, where someone will come up with this great setting and run games in it. And they're more interested in their players learning about the world they've created than actually playing the game and having fun. Exactly, yeah. So there, there, there is a balance to be achieved if one is doing world building outside of the educational rem- realm, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was Brandon Sanderson who uh, I think he said that he limits his world building in his novels whenever he goes to write a new novel to about three to four months. Really? So maybe maybe that hmm. will help people uh, kind of get a feel for how long one should actually spend on a set on a setting uh, that is going to be used for a novel and things like that. Although I mean. He he's a, a difficult person to take cues from because he is so breathtakingly prolific. He's yeah, just, he's, he just writes so much. Yeah, he's he is not your standard human being. So yes, I suppose take Brandon's three to four months with a tiny pinch of salt, and feel free to go plus or minus a little bit. You know, <laughs> um, for anyone who's listening and, and isn't familiar with Brandon Sanderson, he's a fantasy author who wrote the Mistborn series. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a trilogy and a sort of a, a subsequent book to that. And I think he's planned two more trilogies in that setting. And he finished The Wheel of Time after Robert, Robert Jordan, Jordan died. Yeah. And he has also written quite a lot of young adult fiction and a few standalone fantasy novels. And has another epic fantasy series called The Stormlight Archives, which I think there are two books out of it now. I haven't read those myself. But, um, and he's done all of that in maybe the past six or eight years. He just churns things out at such an incredible pace. Yeah, this is true. There is, uh, and they aren't small books. <laughs> they are not small books by any means. Yeah, no, totally. Absolutely. Um, yeah, he's, he's definitely not a lazy man. I'll give you that much. It's incredible. I'd, I'd love to be able to do that. I mean, like for, like for the videos, for example, like every video is about maybe a 2000 word script. It takes me mm-hmm. roughly two weeks to be able to write that, you know? 
Right. <laughs> and then when you compare that to Sanderson and the stuff he turns out, it's just it's just mind blowing. Like absolutely mind blowing. The process of world building changes from person to person. It's not always the same process. But that said, there is kind of like two overarching main processes that uh, world builders go through to construct their fictional settings. And they are uh, bottom up and top down. Now, that might be quite confusing for people who are new to this world building thing. But what that basically means is bottom up implies that you start constructing your world uh, in the very small scale and work up to the big scale. So you could start by constructing, uh, I don't know, a small town uh, from which your protagonist will come. And then once you have that, you work up uh, and maybe to a continent and then to a planet. And then you can keep going up and up and up. Top down is the the same thing in reverse. If you start on the very big scale, like say galaxies or solar systems, and then uh, as you build, you work your way down... uh, to the very small stuff. Each method kind of has its own pros and cons. I am firmly in the top-down camp. That is that is me, because I have a thing for space, so obviously starting at the top is, is great for me. Bill, what are your thoughts on this? Do you have a preferred method, or how do you go about your world-building? So I get a lot of ideas about cultures, and, you know, creating societies, and creating things that are, like, different to what we have societally. But I always want them to make sense and to, you know, arise believably. So I, I like to have a believable geography. So I'm kind of coming at it from, from both angles, which might be a, a bit of a problem sometimes that I, <laughs> I, I find it difficult to focus on one specific thing. Right, yeah. I, w- I would say I come, I come top down from the, the point of view of making the planet. That's my main con world. So, you're, I, so your your geofiction is kind of top down. My geofiction is kind of top down. Yeah, that's a good way to, to phrase it. You know, I, I want that to be believable. I want that to be consistent. Yeah. So, you know, I'll, I'll come up with where all of the things are, like all of the natural features are. And then I will allow that to suggest to me where I can place these cultures that I have imagined. Right. Okay. Yeah. So you, you come from, you do come from both sides but with an emphasis mm-hmm. on top-down, it sounds like. Uh, is that right? I mean, it depends on what I'm working on on any given day. Yeah, I suppose. Um, but I think it is it is a good idea for us to advocate to, to world builders to um, be conscious of the method that you are using because when you're building, uh, every step of your build has ramifications for a later step. If you're just kind of like going around randomly building bits and bobs, like, oh, I'll do a culture here and then I'll design a star system there and then I'll make a language for this place, it can get very confusing very fast. So you do need yeah. to be kind of strict about things to to gain that level of internal consistency we keep speaking about. Yeah, you, you it'll get messy very quickly if you do things that way. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's, that's personally, that's why I do top-down because um, for me anyways, I find it easier to control the variables when I start from the large scale. So if I've constructed a galaxy, like that already has me on a, a good footing for the rest because it's very easy mm-hmm. then to trickle down, for me anyways. There's maybe a, a slightly different way of looking at it, which isn't so much focused on bottom-up or top-down, okay. but it's about playing to your strengths. Ah, very, yes, this is very good. Elaborate, Bill. So if, if we look at any of the, you know, the, the examples we've given earlier... Mm-hmm. Uh, or any of the kind of the, the great novelists in, in fantasy, they all have something that is is their thing that, that in their world building. Right. So in Tolkien's example, just because he's the most, most famous and mo- easiest one to identify, his thing was languages. Of course, like his, yeah. his career was as um, a, a linguist. And he created these languages before he wrote the stories, as far as I understand. And Middle-earth came as a way of fitting these languages he had created into some kind of cultural context. Of course, yeah, yeah. And of course, there are other things there as well, that it was meant to be a sort of an Anglo-Saxon mythology, you know, the, the, a national mythology for England, the way that the, there are Norse and Germanic mythologies. Mm-hmm. But even that is kind of based on the, the sort of Anglo-Saxon element in the languages he created. 
Yeah. So it, you, you've got to know what to focus on. Um, you know, Stephen Erickson, who's another great fantasy author, his thing is kind of creating creating cultures and creating histories of cultures and anthropologies that work together. Exactly. So you really have to you really have to focus on your strengths. And I think it's worth pointing out that these strengths or these particular areas that you are proficient in uh, can be as obscure as possible and they will still work. You can still uh, like hang your world building process on these uh, on these areas of expertise you have. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, so it doesn't. You don't have to be an astronomer, for example, to be able to construct a good setting. Although it does help, you can, <laughs> you can, you can be whatever you want to be, and it can, it can really help make a, a setting very unique to you. And that's really important because, especially in in current climate, where where fantasy and sci-fi is so big, uh, it's really important for people to try and like uh, stand out in the crowd if they're writing novels or designing games. They have to have a real unique slant now because it's. It's very popular at the moment. And and as you say, it can be anything you can think of. If your thing is you like to think about religion, yeah, you could exactly. build a setting entirely based on religions and how the religions interact. And so many things could grow from that. Like, you can go even obscure. Like, if your thing is like, I don't know, knitting, right? <laughs> <laughs> Bear with me here. You could use, like, like you can use knitting as, like, uh, an analogy for, like, a creation myth or something. You know, very easily. And so, like, it really is. I do want to emphasize, you can go as, like, as insane as possible with your particular uh, niche. And you can make, you can put it into world building. Robert Jordan does have a weaving analogy for his his uh, creation. Oh, does he? But I don't think knitting has been done before. There you go. Edgar Grumot supplying all the best ideas. <laughs> <laughs> I'd read it. Hey, that's true. Well, well, Bill, the way we go, we'd read anything that has some sort but of. But I, I already, I'm already convinced that knitting is witchcraft. Are you? But do 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 go on. Like I understand how it works that you've got the the two rows of of wool hooped together, and you, how you get the needles to do that. I just can't figure out how they start off. Because if oh. it's like hoops all the way down, what does the what does the bottom row hook onto? It's like you are creating something out of nothing. Surely it's that- like sky hooks, essentially. Like you're just like hanging something off the sky. It's, yeah, yeah, know. exactly. It's like surely that breaks some sort of fundamental law of nature. You can't just create <laughs> something out of nothing. So maybe your knitting as an analogy for creation myth isn't isn't that far fetched after all. This is true. And uh, hey, listen, uh, listeners, if you want to, you can leave some knitting based creation myths in the comments. Myself and Bill would love to read them. Oh my god, I would absolutely love to read that. <laughs> So if we think on the very, very large scale of things, like, say, the likes of Star Trek or Star Wars, okay. this is this is world building done on the galactic level, okay? So the mm-hmm. scale is, is vast, and you have to encompass a whole load of different things. But obviously, that isn't all works of fiction. I mean, like, you, you can take it smaller to, like, adjust the solar system scale, one star system, with the likes of, say, say Firefly. And you can continue to work your way down. Like, you can get extremely small. Uh, and it, this all plays a very important function in how you world build. You need to world build to the scale, if you get me. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and you can have, like, a uh, a planetary scale. Like, again, to bring up Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings uh, essentially occurs on just one planet. Obviously, there is no space travel. There's no alternate reality or anything. It's just a one-planet location, same as A Song of Ice and Fire, same as The Last Airbender. Uh, we can go smaller again. You can go to, like, the scale of just a continent. Uh, you can go smaller again, like, to a city. Like, for example, Gotham, the world building in Gotham. Um, and it can just keep trickling down, you know? I kind of question to what point, um, in some works anyway, that the idea of scale is actually useful. I mean, what you used for talking about galactic scale there, was Star Wars and Star Trek. Okay. You could very easily tell the same stories and create more or less the same world by replacing space travel with sea travel. And yeah. instead of having it be about, you know, an, uh, an evil empire over the whole galaxy, it could be an evil empire that rules the seas. Yeah, and of course. instead of being, you know, a, a different 
you know, in, in Star Trek, you know, a different race of, or a different planet of hats in every episode. It could just be a different island each episode. Yeah, absolutely. And this is why, again, I, I said I like to think about scale in the works of fiction mm. I consume. I like to think about the merits of that scale. And that's explicitly what I was talking about. Oh, I get you. Okay. And also, what's an interesting thought exercise is to work the other way around, I think. Like, it's very easy to take large scale and be able to shrink it down and still say that the small scale mimics what's going on the large scale. Uh, but what can be very interesting is to think about small-scale worlds, say, like, one-planet worlds, and imagine, can they be blown up into vast, like, intergalactic scales? And I think that's very, very uh, an interesting thought to think about. Treasure Planet by Disney. Treasure Planet. <laughs> Instead of Treasure Island, it's Treasure Planet. So it's they've, they've scaled it up from being about, you know, going to the West Indies to going into space yeah exactly brilliant you see if anyone wants to blow up uh small scale world building into large galactic scale that's another thing me and bill would love to read so as well there you picked out uh talking about like continents or land masses as a scale and then even smaller cities yeah now these i suppose you've mentioned you know gotham and and that kind of thing as, as a city scale um i think these are probably a lot rarer broadly speaking, than the other ones, then you're know, having a grand space opera or having a fantasy planet. Absolutely, um, yeah. But there are some very interesting things to consider here and things that go a little bit outside what we'd normally think of as world building, I suspect. Oh, right. Okay, go for it. Well, the, the two things that um, initially come to mind, The Lost World by Arthur Conan Doyle. So that's not the not the Jurassic Park sequel. <laughs> yes. It's a Victorian adventure novel, or well, Edwardian adventure novel, by the same guy who invented Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, of um, course. And it's, the, the premise is some explorer finds our, an isolated plateau deep in the Amazon jungle where there are still dinosaurs. Yeah. And this band of adventurers from London go off and they find the dinosaurs and, you know, savage ape men and have all sorts of wonderfully, you know, turn-of-the-century adventures. And, I mean, that's obviously, that's the same kind of thing as we're talking about in creating a fantasy planet with different constraints, because it has to be, you know, it, it has to be somewhere believable on, on Earth. You know, it couldn't be in, you know, the middle of Wales or something, because everyone would have noticed it. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it, it is creating... A setting in its in its own right that just happens to be placed within the familiar, which yeah. is an interesting challenge. And then you've got another thing from roughly the same era, I think, early twentieth century, uh, the genre of Ruritanian romance. Yes, which the original one, uh, as far as I know, is The Prisoner of Zenda by is it Anthony Hope? I think I can see the book from here. Hold on. Okay. <laughs> Well, Hope, anyway. I think it's Anthony Hope. Bill just Um, checking his personal library there. (laughs) I'm just sitting right across from my bookshelf. Um, It's set in a little country called Ruritania, which is given a a precise location. I think it's 60 miles east of Dresden. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) So you see this a lot in um, modern media when you want to talk about world events and contemporary issues without using real-world locations, Mm-hmm. which can obviously be very controversial. Yeah. Like in the West Wing, I can't remember the name of the country, but they have this fictional rogue state in the Middle East that causes crises and is involved in terrorism and stuff. Um, obviously, they don't want to use real-world locations for fear of offending them and you know causing a, a diplomatic incident, which you know is perfectly reasonable and makes yeah, sense. Yeah, of course. So yeah, they yeah. just cre- create this sort of fictional Middle Eastern one to act as an example of the kind of issue that they're discussing. So, and then to maybe take another arguably even smaller scale after, you know, land masses and lost worlds and individual countries and cities, you've got things that don't really change any of the surface details of our world and run alongside it. I'm thinking of something like Harry Potter. Is, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Would you would you count Harry Potter as, as being the kind of thing we're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, Harry Potter is a constructed setting. I call these, like, internal worlds. I'm not sure if that is the correct definition for them, but uh, that's mine anyways. Um, Narnia would be another example uh, of an internal world, a world that runs alongside ours. And you also... Well, Narnia is a, 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 an alternate universe. Right, yeah. No, I'm kind of grouping the lot of them together. 
you know what I mean? Okay. Like alt universe, parallel universe, like internal universe. They're all kind of like, mm-hmm. uh, basically what I'm doing is trying to define those types of works whereby characters start in Earth and then through some means move away into a separate existence. Okay, I get you. I th- um, Now that I say it out loud, I reckon the term internal world is probably not the best. <laughs> so I might need to think about how to define that correctly. Uh, okay, but I, it, it's it's something we, we can grasp what you're talking about. It's a pretty intuitive concept. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, Wizard of Oz is uh, is another example, I suppose. Um, and yeah, that, that, like, that is an entire genre in and of itself, kind of, you know? Yeah, definitely. And it's something that occurs most frequently, I guess, in children's fiction, because it's the whole idea of there being something else, something or something magical that could happen to you. Yeah, it do- it really does inspire awe, you know? Yeah. Like, like even now, uh, reading or, or watching uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, you still kind of go, I could just walk through a wardrobe and then all this amazing stuff happens. And even, <laughs> even though I'm not a kid, I'm still like, yes, yes, I want that to happen. Or get sucked into a painting. Or yeah. fall down a hill. Yeah, exactly. It's it's really cool. It's it's a very very nice mechanism uh, to inspire that all. I really like it. It gives it gives a setting a familiarity, whilst giving it also the exotic. You know. Yeah. Yeah, which I which I think is really neat because you know the contrast makes it there. Something else has just occurred to me, and I don't think this is one that we've we've really uh, touched on. Oh, cool. Go for it. Um. There's a genre of fiction known as Bangsian fantasy. Is this a familiar term to you? It is not. What is this? So Bangsian fantasy is fiction that takes place in the afterlife. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, I, so I, know, I know nothing of this. Characters that have died and then what happens to them. You know, like that they, they have gone on to purgatory or... Whatever kind of whatever kind of thing you want to suggest. Can uh, whatever. sorry, Bill, just interrupt because I'm I'm struggling to come up with an example. What, what are some examples of this? You know, I can't I can't remember any that I've read myself, but I've um I've come across references to it. There's there's one series which is a sort of an extreme example called the Riverworld series. I just remember reading like a Wikipedia article about it, and it's every human that died between something like 10,000 BC and 1960, have all been simultaneously reborn on this vast planet. And it follows the interactions of, like, actual people from history on this world. So, you know, Amelia Earhart, like, is hanging out with Stalin or something. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> and Julius Caesar. There, there are other ones which are kind of things taking place, you know, as I said, like, well, characters waiting for judgment or that judgment doesn't happen, which is like there's some kind of other world in which we they have memories of their life on Earth. Um, okay. Yeah, it's, 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 it's not something I've read, as I've said, but it's a very interesting concept. And I also remember when I was reading the, the article about it, there's at least one example of a reverse Bangsian fantasy, which is people in another, like, uh, in this setting, where when they die, our world is their afterlife. Oh, now that is cool. Yeah, it's 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 a compelling idea, isn't it? That's a very very cool idea. I again, I have never heard of any of this. Uh, where does the term come from? Where's Bangsian come from? Uh, somebody bang or somebody bangs wrote. Oh, okay. uh, oh you don't know who a famous novel? Huh? You don't know who this somebody is? No. Um, I can Google it real quick if you what, want. What what we might do, Bill, is we might we might in our own time look this up and throw it in the show notes. Okay. Cool. Sounds so if, good. If, if people are interested, want to do some follow-up reading on this, it'll all be in the show notes. I know you like your alternate history. I have a soft spot for alternate history, uh-huh. yes. And so while we're on the subject of kind of like fiction within our world, I think we, we, we got to talk about alternate history. So do you want to do you want to take a soapbox there for a second? <laughs> um, in, a, in a lot of ways, this is pretty similar to what I was saying about the lost world and the Ruritanian romance kind of genre, in that you're dealing with the actual world as a sort of a, an existing idea, and then you have to change that somehow. So you're, you're still constrained by a lot of things that actually happened, and 
you know, the, the real world facts of Earth, but you get to, you get to play with them. You do, but if I can interrupt, you do play with them, but you also need to be aware of the ramifications of you uh, changing certain variables. So oh, you, of course, you do of course. still need to deliver that internal consistency. Yeah, that, that goes without saying, really. Um, there's a series I've been reading recently, which I'm quite fond of. It's called the Temeraire series. Okay. Um, I don't know if I've told you about this. And it's a little bit of a silly concept at first, but one I, one I, that's very well executed. Um, it's set in the Napoleonic Wars. It, it starts in, I think, 1806 or so, 1805 or 1806. And history is pretty much exactly the same, um, at least for Europe, as it is in our actual world. Okay. Except that there are also dragons. Huh. <laughs> yeah. Class. So that's that's kind of the the obvious reaction. It's like, okay, that's a bit weird. Yeah. Um, but it's incredibly well done. Uh, the author she creates this really believable idea of how aerial warfare would work in Napoleonic times with the dragons, and she never like sits down and kind of writes a warfare manual or anything. But from the prose, you can figure out, you know, the 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 way the formations work and the way that the fighting, the combat, the you know, dragon to dragon combat takes place, mm. and it it makes sense, and the, the, it rings true. Oh, cool! And she's changed little things about history. You know, outside of Europe, uh, colonialism, global colonialism of of the European powers hasn't been as powerful and successful. Okay, but then from the moment that the story begins, things change, and I found this really fun because I love that period of history anyway. I don't know a lot about it, but there's something really compelling about it. That you know, I don't know if you've ever seen Master and Commander. You know, yeah, of course, kind of, yeah. Or like if you've ever read or watched Sharp or anything. The Napoleonic Wars are just cool. And so I was reading along, you know, kind of what happens around this time in in history because I knew the history was roughly the same. And you know, so the Battle of Trafalgar happens, and I was like, okay, that's cool. That happened at this time. That means I know when the book is taking place. But then things went differently mm. in very subtle ways. Things that like happened, battles that occurred in our in our version of the Napoleonic Wars still happened, but had different um, outcomes or had different reasons for happening. And things just kind of slightly spiral out of control. So, you know, you're reading this expecting you know what's going to happen next and it doesn't. And yeah. it's really exciting. <laughs> there's actually, there's a, a very good book. And um, this is one of my absolute favorite novels ever. Uh, that covers both of our previous points, which I'm sure I've mentioned to you before, uh, called The Years of Rice and Salt. I don't know if you have mentioned this to me before. Oh, okay. The The premise of it is the Black Death. So in, you know, 1348 or whatever, instead of, you know, wiping out a third of Europe, it wipes out almost all of Europe. So Europe, Europe is essentially removed from history. All right, cool. And and what what are the ramifications of this? So instead, the world becomes dominated by um, Chinese and Islamic cultural ideas. Oh yeah, I, yeah. And you can Western see how ones. this would would likely happen if that was the case. Yeah, mm. and it's it's really it's it's really beautifully written. The it, and it takes a lot of inspiration from existing uh, literature, like the the first section. I, I think is based on um, some Chinese epic because it has like it's interspersed with poetry, which doesn't really have much to do with the plot at points. It's just you know a description of something beautiful happening in the background, and then it goes back to the characters interacting. Okay, but what makes it sort of like a Bangsian fantasy is that it's told over the span of I think about eight hundred years, and it's the same maybe five, six, or seven characters. Throughout each of their reincarnations. Oh, wow. Okay. So, the you know, the, the five of them interact in whatever way in the first section of the book. And then they die and they interact in the afterlife. And then they're all reincarnated. And oh, wow. have interactions again. Obviously, they don't remember that they, they met before. But, and th- this keeps happening over and over. And then, you know, each time in the afterlife, they, they get all of their memories back. And they, they, you know, they're trying to alter the course of their dharma and, you know, do things differently the next time around so they can pr- so they can progress. That's, that's incredible. What's the name of this book again? The Years of Rice and Salt. It's, it's stunningly beautiful. It's, uh, who, it's an who's, incredible read. Who's the author? 
uh, a guy called Kim Stanley Robinson, who oh, also okay. wrote yeah, one yeah. of my favorite science fiction series, the the Mars trilogy. Mm, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Which also, by the way, the Mars trilogy is is a great book. You uh, talked to me at length about the world building in that book, <laughs> and it's mind blowing. Also, that's kind of literal world building because you know it's about terraforming Mars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's quite literally building a world. Yeah, but that book looks great. I'll throw that book, uh, the link to that book, in in the show notes because. Uh, that looks like it's going to be a good read. I'd highly recommend it to anyone, yeah. On Master and Commander, we talked before in real life about a nice little thing you noticed uh, in Master and Commander, uh, which uh, I suppose would be nice if you could talk about. Oh, is this the Galapagos thing? This is the Galapagos thing. Do you want to go for that? Sure. So, um, I've already spoken about how alt history could be considered you know, world-building, or in, in what way it requires world-building. Um, and I mentioned historical fiction alongside that. And I think, at times, there's a case to be made that when certain things you do in historical fiction count as world-building as well. Mm. Um, and obviously, you've got the, the the same challenges of writing any kind of story or any kind of plot and literature. But in writing historical fiction, you've got this existing element to deal with of real-world history that you can't change to any great degree. Yeah. So it's 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 quite fun to see what you can do. And I think writers often, like, put in little, not jokes, but little suggestions towards other things. And in this this film, Master and Commander at the Far Side of the World, with um, uh, Russell Crowe, it's about, about 10 years old, they, at one point in the in the film, they passed through the Galapagos Islands. Now, as I said, this is a Napoleonic-era film, so it's the early 1800s. Yeah. And they passed through the Galapagos Islands, and Russell Crowe's kind of best friend and sidekick, uh, Stephen Maturin, the character is called, is a naturalist. And so they go onto the islands, and they're looking around, and this this character, Maturin, is examining all the animals there. Yeah. And he's, you know, he's making observations and taking notes and taking drawings and he, he captures captures some specimens. And anyway, the, the plot comes back. They abandon all that in a hurry and they leave the islands and go on back to fighting the French. And, you know, this is really sad. You know, he was a committed naturalist and he, he has to uh, give up all of these wonderful things he's discovered. And there's the suggestion there that had he stayed and had he been able to take these specimens with him and been able to do a proper inquiry, he would have discovered or made the connections that another expedition to the Galapagos about 30 years later did yep. make. Yeah. And that's, of course, the the Charles Darwin expedition there on HMS Beagle, which is often seen as being responsible for him advancing the theory of natural selection. Yeah. Which I think was when you told me about that. I did not make this connection. Uh, when you told me about that, it was very, very intriguing. But it's a wonderful little connection, and it, especially for someone like me who like is a real like science nut, it's just it's just a wonderful thing to think. You know, it could have happened. You know, it could have happened yeah. earlier and things like. That. It's really, really cool, and it's completely. And it's, it's really sad. <laughs> it's, it is it really sad. It breaks my heart every time I watch that bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's cool as well that it's it's not part of the plot. Like the like nothing about that film is to do with Darwinism. You know, it's just a little small little thing. Like you say, they stuck in there for like the eagle-eyed viewer to be able to pick out and feel yeah. sad about later, you know? <laughs> so while we're talking so much about alternate stuff and using the word alt, I suppose we should talk about alt physics. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so obviously physics being being physics and uh, alternate being just a different form of physics. And I think uh, the most famous example of this would probably be Terry Pratchett's Discworld. Okay, right. Yeah, so the way his world works obviously isn't based on the same physical parameters that our world is based on. Like, yeah. the, the speed of light is not, like, C. It's, you know, it's the way it is observed in real life. Like, light creeps over the horizon and all this sort of thing. And obviously, uh, the world being flat has a whole load of different physical parameters to it like that. Um, and it can be very intriguing, uh, to deal with all physics. Very dangerous, I think. And very hard to do. Um, yeah. But I think Terry Pratchett achieves it really well 
a lot, like largely down to the fact that his work is satire. Yes, that's exactly what I was about to say. Yeah, he can, he can, he has a greater sort of uh, scope to play with things because of the satire. Yeah. But it is a very interesting concept. And I think, uh, do you have an example of alternate gravity? Yeah, I was talking to you before about a book called, um, I think it's On by Adam Roberts. Um, as far as I remember, he's a British writer, British science fiction writer. Okay. And On is set in, well, the, the setting begins on this little village, which is built on a cliff. And the cliff is vast and stretches like as far as the eye can see, both above and below and left and right. It's just this this huge, huge, not uniformly smooth, like it's quite, quite um, ripply. Mm. But it's just built onto the, the surface of this cliff, like the sheer face, and into caves and such. And it's been a while since I've read the novel, but basically what you find out about half or two-thirds of the way through the book is that this is actually set on Earth. Right. At where you know, hundreds of years or thousands of years after the disaster, where some someone messing around with gravity caused gravity to go wrong on Earth, so things went sideways, like along, the, like they fell along the surface of the planet instead of towards the center of the mass. Right, which and, which is risky to do it, like we stated. Yeah, I mean he do, he doesn't really give much of a, um, you know, straight justification for it. He doesn't give a scientific explanation. You know, and you know, it doesn't need that. It's just it is what it is. It's a this is what's happening, and oh, experiments with zero point energy caused it, and that that's all there is to it, and that's all it really needs, in my opinion. Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. I just think that's that's kind of a a an interesting and a brave thing to do. Just you know, straight up say, you know, it's it's not working the same way. Things aren't right here, and you know, what would happen? What would be the consequences if everything just like fell north forever. And uh, what what are the consequences? Can can you elaborate on that? Well, obviously, there's, there's a huge, like, societal collapse. <laughs> right, yeah, <laughs> <You know>? of course. <laughs> like, no, nothing really, nothing really continues through that. And no one has any memory of anything beforehand. Um, so they're all just reduced to living in, like, low-technology societies built on this, what to them is essentially just a huge cliff. Okay. Um, and then as the book goes on, you I think there's like a little bit more technology and stuff salvaged from before comes into it. As I say, it's been a long time since I read it. Um, but yeah, it's it's an interesting concept and it's it's done pretty well, I think. Cool. And again, we shall chuck uh, some links in the show notes and people can go check it out if they uh, feel so inclined. So I suppose the last thing uh, I'd like to talk about, Bill, on uh, this episode is the Arthur C. Clarke quote, uh, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. It's quite a famous quote. I think I think most people will be uh, familiar with it. So I have this thing, Bill, about science fiction and fantasy. My thoughts on it are that there should be no distinction between the two genres. But there is, of course. People are hardcore science fiction heads and hardcore fantasy heads. But for me, they're very much just two sides of the same coin. And very often there are elements of science fiction in fantasy and elements of fantasy in science fiction, but they're just dressed up in a different way so they don't appear jarring or anything. And I think this quote really highlights it in that there is no divide between technology and magic given the correct parameters. Uh, and like a good example I like to always tell people is the on Star Trek, the transporters. Uh, I mean, like they're essentially magic. You know, like people step onto this thing and then magic happens and then they appear on the planet. And it's just wrapped in techno babble, so it seems like uh, like a sci-fi thing. Or it is a sci-fi thing, but it is also magic, you know? And uh, I'm a strong advocate of abolishing the sci-fi fantasy divide and really just having a more homogenous fiction sort of thing. I'm not sure I fully agree. Ah, why so? Um, well, first of all, like, they're doing very different things aesthetically, and, you know, it is primary uh, a literary genre. So, you know, the 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 different aesthetics are important in, in understanding what it is that people want to read and understanding that why this distinction is here. Right, okay. And, 
Second of all, I mean, I understand, I understand the 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 meaning behind the Arthur C. Clarke quote. I feel like it it kind of does a disservice to a lot of science fiction to say that it's no different to magic. Okay. You know, that, that's and it does it does a disservice to fantasy to an extent as well. But it's that's just saying that you know for particularly for hard science fiction stuff that's been well researched that there's nothing to it and that you know it's it's just kind of fluff put in there which is a terrible shame when someone has like really thought about the technology that they're describing and the consequences of it and you know what they're trying to say with using this technology in this particular way when it's been well researched and I don't think it's a disservice to have magical elements in in science fiction because it uh, it gives a sense of awe to the setting, like even more awe than like you know space, obviously. So I think those magical elements. Well, not all science fiction takes place in space. Yeah, no, of course, yeah. I'm just using space an example because I'm thinking uh, along the lines of Star Trek. But like, even like yeah. if we take like for oh, I don't know, for example, Minority Report. Like, okay. Very much of that with the whole like uh, cognitive policing and things like that could be okay. Like, yeah, well, I mean that that's that's from an older an older era of science fiction where you know things like ESP were considered to just be scientific advances we were waiting to make. But I think in in more more modern times, like more kind of punky science fiction, doesn't really have any magical elements at all. The, well, the point I'm making, the point I do want to make though, that it's it's not a bad thing for magic to bleed over into science fiction. And it's not a bad thing as well for sci-fi elements to bleed over into fantasy. I mean, you have, like, science fantasy as a genre in which that yeah. has happened. Um, and, like, like I, again, I try and advocate that this sort of magic, even if it's wrapped in technobabble, does lend a sense of awe to a setting. So, therefore, I think people should... Uh, not be so hard, like hardcore one side or the other. Do you know? Yeah. No, I, I take your point. All right, and it's it's a question of flavor more than it is a question of anything else. Um, yes, aesthetic flavor. Yes, absolutely. So as well, thinking in the terms of world building and constructing a setting, I think it's important for world builders to be open minded to all genres, regardless of what genre they want to create in be open-minded to all different genres like science fiction, like fantasy. They, Like I say, I think of them as two sides of the one coin and everything can influence your work. So mm. essentially, my abolishment of the, the of the divide between science fiction and fantasy is just a one to enable greater cre- creativity. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd, I'd fully support you on that point. And I think it's the same for well, almost any sort of creative endeavor. Like if you want to write... If you want to write romance novels, you know, read some mystery every once in a while, just, you know, so you're not do, just regurgitating the same thing. If you want to write airport thrillers, like, read some magical realism once in a while, you know, it, it'll <laughs> might, might get something out of the prose. You know, you don't, don't limit yourself to just consuming and creating a single thing. Exactly, exactly. This is this is, this is true. And that, again, that's the, the crux of my argument. I, I just maybe am uh, not saying it all that coherently <laughs> speaking um, of internal consistency and coherency <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say there is a very good essay which is broadly on this topic um i, I think it would you know you'd mostly agree with him although he's he's putting it he's putting it the opposite way to you okay um, there is a canadian fantasy author called or scott backer whose work i'm quite into there's a lot of interesting stuff going on on it but the most the the thing that really got me into him was his author's blurb, like the bio at the beginning of his books, says, Or Scott Backer lives in Ontario. He divides his time between writing fantasy and writing philosophy, and he sometimes forgets which is which. (laughs) Cool. So what he's written so far is this big, you know, big fantasy epic that's essentially a kind of an argument about epistemology and about, you know, knowledge and morality. Uh, And it's fabulously interesting. Okay, but he's also written. Um, you know, as I said, he he like he writes philosophy professionally. He's a he's an academic philosopher, and he wrote an article a while ago called "The Skeptical Fantasist," which is talking about um, the, you know the a kind of the worth of fantasy from a scientific or a skeptic's point of view, and that science fiction looks forward and engages with 
you know, what we expect about the future and what we might learn in the future. And, yeah, like like you know, ESP. Yeah, yeah, as like, you know, when Philip K. Dick and, you know, Arthur C. Clarke and guys writing in the 60s ubiquitously kind of assumed that that would be something we would eventually find out. Yeah. And the way, you know, cyberpunk was like talking about technology and, you know, things about space travel often explore, you know, what what will going to space do to society and those kind yeah, of issues. Yeah, what will occur in the future, yeah. Yeah. Whereas fantasy is an engagement with older and usually pre-scientific modes of thought. So, you know, the way that you know, Narnia is so, like, heavily symbolic and, like, the sun literally sets in the west. No, it sets in the east in Narnia, doesn't it? Or, anyway, the sun, like, literally rises in the east and you can go there and go see it. Yeah. And, you know, you could say something similar about Discworld, the way that Discworld is literally a flat earth and, and, you know, engaging with that concept and the way that, like, people in pre-scientific societies saw the world Examining that still has a value for understanding how we deal with the world we do have. Absolutely, yeah. I I thoroughly agree with that. Uh, And again, I think it kind of uh, goes in line with my, um, what's called, my coin analogy. Uh, Again, when we speak of science fiction and fantasy, uh, in that they're two sides of the one coin. Yeah, they they aren't the same thing. They are opposed, but they're doing something similar. Exactly. They're both in different directions, though, studying the human condition in a way. Bill. Edgar. I think we've covered quite a lot today. Yeah, that's been that's been some good podcasting. Yeah, some uh, good pods have been cast, some, eh? Some good pods have been cast. <laughs> <laughs> so, guys, uh, this has been the first episode of the Artifexian podcast. I really, uh, both of us really hope that uh, you enjoyed. We encourage all of everyone to uh, contact the show and get a discussion going about it. Uh, you can contact on the subreddit or Artifexian or by email edgar at artifexian.com or on the website there's a contact us uh, form that you can fill out so there's loads of ways to contact get in touch with us we really want to hear from you and to remind you uh edgar at artifexian.com will go to both of us it's it's just called edgar but it we will actually both get to read it yes edgar just didn't think very much about the naming of that email before he created it <laughs> Uh, well yes Bill will read all of your emails as will I and we look forward to hearing from you hey Bill Edgar Edgar out Edgar out Uh, like you pointed out, Harry Potter is is a perfect example. Hogwarts clearly is in England, but it's uh, but it's, it's in Scotland. Own... It's in, is it in Scotland? It's in Scotland. Yeah. Okay. Let me say that again. Hogwarts. <laughs> <laughs> I had I had no idea. I'm really sorry. Oh, Harry has to go all the way up from. Does he live in London, Harry? He lives in Surrey, I think. W- where's Surrey? It's like south of London, I think. Okay, well, all right, let, okay. Let me Google.
Oh, little great. whinging. Where's little whinging? In the English county of Surrey. Yeah. Okay, so you're st- oh, Hogwarts is in Scotland. Where in Scotland is Hogwarts? Well, you can't find that on the map. Okay. <laughs> Obviously. This is exactly the point. It's, it's unpotable. This is very true. This is very true. Uh, okay. Right. <laughs> well, I really made a hames out of that one. Um, <laughs> let me, let me, <laughs> right. How do I get back into this? 